Thank you, Rena. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to pick up our reading in verse 11. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1,901. A lot of you know the feeling. The feeling you get when you're waiting there at a stoplight. Maybe you're just getting off of the freeway ramp. Maybe you're somewhere around Forest Park. Maybe you're on your way to work or to school or maybe even to church. You find yourself staring intently at that red light, as if staring at it somehow is going to make it turn color any quicker. And then you notice a little sign to the corner of your eye on the left. You look over there and you notice a sign made out of cardboard being held by cold hands and very calloused fingers. It says something like, homeless veteran, anything helps, God bless. You look at them, you notice their tired eyes and their worn clothes, and you find yourself looking back to that light, hoping that it somehow did turn green, but it's still red, and so you slowly look back in their direction. They look cold, they look frail. You find yourself debating inside, should I make eye contact with them? Should I roll down the window? Should I say something? Should I give something? You know there's something in the Bible about love and the poor, but but something's holding you back. You're not sure if it's that thing somebody once told you about how cash isn't always the best thing to give in those situations, or are you wondering if it's actually something else that's holding you back in the moment? Maybe before the light turns green, you do give them something, but then you start wondering, now what? Will I see them again there someday? How did they get to their place in life? You think to yourself, could that ever be me in their situation? We seem to be worlds apart, but you start asking yourself, are we really that different? We're in the middle of a sermon series called Living Love, where we've been unpacking from Scripture what does it look like to live and to love as those who have been loved by God. And yet love never plays itself out generically. It always plays itself out particularly expressed moment by moment, person by person. And in the Bible, one particular group of people gets particular attention, the poor. In fact, over 300 verses in the Bible talk about the poor, about those in need, telling us it's a subject not only close to God's heart, but something that we need to consider if we're truly going to live loved. This morning, we're going to look at one of those passages, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word. This is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And skipping ahead to verse 16, it continues. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If we're going to be a people who love the poor, First, a few questions we need to deal with, and this passage is going to help us. What does it mean to love the poor? What hinders that love? How is it possible? First, what does it really mean to love the poor? Now, I know when we hear the word the poor in our context, we often think of someone with a cardboard sign, but Scripture talks about the poor in ways that includes far more than that. If you survey the over 300 Scriptures in the Bible about the poor, we see that it includes the weak and the elderly those with mental and physical disabilities, new immigrants and the working poor, natural disaster victims, the unemployed, single-parent families, orphans, and widows. As a result of their circumstances, they often have needs that exceed their own resources or their own abilities. So frequently or constantly find themselves fitting the description we see here in verse 17 in those two words, 
in need. In that same verse, we read that loving the poor has a heart component to it. John talks about the one who sees the need of another but has no pity in response. In the original language, that phrase uh, translated has no pity actually means to close off the seed of your emotion and your compassion, like to close your heart. But for them, they didn't see the heart as the seed of the emotions and compassion. They saw the gut. If you ever felt an emotion so strongly that you physically feel it in your gut, you know what type of response John is talking about. And therefore, to have no pity, to feel nothing towards them, is actually described as something incompatible with having the love of God in us. In other words, there's a way we're supposed to be moved by the plight of another, a way we're supposed to respond, but, but love is, is more than a feeling. Verse 18 tells us that it's a feeling that leads us to action, calling us to love with actions and in truth. And it fits the rest of what Scripture says about love. As you heard quoted earlier, um, at Leviticus 19.18, what Jesus called the greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you think about it, we already know how to do that instinctively. Let me prove that to you. If you're hungry, I bet you already know to go find something to eat. If you're thirsty, you know to get a drink. If you're tired, you're going to try to sleep. Please don't do it until after the service, by the way. And if you're cold, you're automatically thinking of how to go get warm. You see, we're always in tune with our own needs and what it means to, to meet those needs. And so loving our neighbors, ourself in general, simply means seeing another person's needs and striving to get them met as if those were actually our own needs. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, which means love for the poor actually is a very practical matter. Someone asked for clarity on who their neighbor is. Jesus told the story that we looked at three weeks ago, the story of the Good Samaritan, a parable showing that our neighbor, the one that we're called to love, is simply anybody that we see who's in need. See, love happens practically when someone with a need encounters somebody who can help meet that need. That's why verse 17 starts this way. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, Those are the only two elements, the basic elements. That phrase that John uses, material possessions, doesn't refer to merely owning something, but actually having what's necessary for your own needs, and then some on top of that. Another John, John the Baptist, taught about this in Luke 3, verse 11, where he says, The man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. You see, loving the poor means seeing their abundance as the means that God actually intends to use uh, to help meet the needs of others, even if it's just having slightly more than what we need. And yet the means to meet those needs can actually look a couple different ways. The one that we're most familiar with is often called relief. It's directing the effects of poverty, looking at someone's daily needs for food or clothing or shelter or, or medicine and directly meeting that need. It's what a lot of you have been doing this month as you collect those Trader Joe bags out by the sanctuary entrance and by that entrance, in case you're wondering. When you fill those bags with non-perishable items and you bring them back so we can donate to the Grace and Peace Food Pantry. It's what a lot of you have been doing on Sunday nights when you prepare and serve meals at the women's shelter nearby. It's what one of you did for another person in the congregation when they had a medical issue and they needed a prescription they could not afford and you paid for that prescription for them. It's what volunteers for Habitat for Humanity did for a family in my hometown, for a single mom whose daughter was a friend of mine when their house was destroyed uh, by a storm and they were able to get help to rebuild. It's what our deacons and deaconesses do when we get walk-ins on Sunday who after the service meet with them to talk about their needs and how that can be met. It's what we experience when some of us in the congregation need 
to go to the deacons and deaconesses ourselves to address needs that we can't meet on our own. It's what you do when you give to the mercy fund. That's the box in the back of the sanctuary. Giving to help the deacons and deaconesses have resources to help meet the needs of others. It's what you do when you talk to that person with a cardboard sign and say, hey, I go to a church nearby. Come and join us. There's some people that I'd love to introduce you to afterwards. And yet sometimes loving the poor actually means addressing not simply the effects of their poverty, but the underlying causes of their poverty. One way to look at that is, is what is often called development. That's addressing the internal causes of poverty. It's what we often describe to as not just giving a person a fish, but also teaching them how to fish. It's what a number of you do as you volunteer with ministries like More Than Carpentry, which provide job training and provide life skills and development. It's what a number of you will be doing through Concordance Academy to come alongside returning citizens and help them build a strong foundation to keep them out of the desperate circumstances that they're quite likely to come back into. It's what a lot of you are doing now with tutoring, offering help to those who otherwise may never graduate from high school. It's what uh, some of you do when you help teach English to refugees and to new immigrants so they can actually start using their skills and their talents not only to support themselves but to support their families. And yet it's not a matter of one versus the other. It's not a matter of development versus relief. They actually work together. Mother Teresa, a Catholic nun who spent decades serving the poorest of the poor in India, was sometimes challenged uh, on the effectiveness long-term of her humanitarian ministry. One person asked her, why give people fish instead of teaching them how to fish, as if somehow they were in conflict? She responded, my people can't even stand. They're sick, crippled, demented. When I have given them fish to eat and they can stand, I'll turn them over and you give them the rod to catch the fish. See, as basic needs are met, there's opportunity to address the underlying causes of those needs. But relief is always the foundation. And yet not all causes for poverty are internal. Some of them are external. And as external causes of poverty are discovered, loving the poor looks like reform. It looks like justice. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller encourages us to consider what a sequel to the parable of the Good Samaritan might look like. So imagine that the next day, the Samaritan is traveling that same road and it comes along yet another person bleeding on the side of the road. A week later, it happens again, and then again, and then again. As it turns out, every time that he travels that same road between those two cities, he comes across another person lying in the road, and then he looks up and he notices literally hundreds of people likewise lying along the road, all of them beaten and robbed. So what should he do? This is the question of social transformation. When you see one person in need, well, you help. But when you see multitudes of needs, well, of course you give whatever direct help you can, but if you're truly going to love your neighbors yourself, you also need to give thought to how can you address the underlying conditions that are causing so many people to fall into that situation in the first place. If you look in the Old Testament, the commandments with relation to the poor, you notice that one after another they're aimed at either stopping the exploitation of the poor or creating systems that keep poverty from becoming an inescapable cycle. Whether you're talking about forgiving debts and returning ancestral lands in the year of Jubilee, this, this Jewish tradition that they had, or laws that limited personal economic production by farmers that actually enabled the poor to be able to feed themselves. The fact that over 300 verses in the Bible talk about the poor tells us there's something close to God's heart, but the fact that God feels we need that much instruction tells us something else. 
tells us how much we struggle to love the poor, how much extra instruction we really need. What hinders that? What keeps us from, what, why do we close our heart towards the poor? Well, verse 17, John talks about seeing our brother in need. But what if we don't see them? Years ago, a friend of mine used to have people over for dinners. She was a, a great cook. She did a couple times a month, and there was always plenty of people and plenty of leftovers. One week, one of her guests suggested intentionally making more than they needed uh, so they could follow their dinner by serving meals to those who could really use a meal that night. And so they did. They drove far from their neighborhood to a part of town that none of them have ever been before, where they met dozens of women and men who called the streets their homes. But instead of just dropping off food and driving away, they decided to sit down and actually hear their stories, get to know them, and let's just say it's not what she expected. She met a former printing press operator in his 50s who was recently downsized at an age when nobody wanted to rehire him and he had a skill that people just weren't hiring for anymore. She met a former truck driver who sat next to the former caseworker who once helped the former truck driver get food but now himself had become homeless when the relief agency that he worked for had to let go all of their staff. She met a woman whose identity had been stolen by a family member whose financial record had been ruined who had also struggled to hold down a job ever since suffering a head injury in a car accident. With no secure place to stay, all of them had eventually been robbed, which meant no IDs, which meant they also had no finances nor a mailing address to get replacement IDs, which means they had no way to prove their identity to a potential employer. They were trapped. Before, she'd only seen the poor from a distance. Now she began to see them in a very different way because she began to see them up close. She said to me, I can see just how easily that could have been me. Because she too had recently suffered a horrible financial setback. And it was only because of a a broad support network that she was able to endure. See, often the reason that we don't care for the poor is that we don't know the poor. We don't see their challenges the way they actually are. And as she soon found out, loving the poor actually costs a lot more than we think that it should cost. So she decided we're going to actually come alongside some of these folks and help get them back on their feet. So what does that mean? That means, first of all, we need to get them a driver's license. Okay, to get a driver's license, you have to get a social security card. Okay, to get that, you need a replacement birth certificate. So they found out how to apply for a birth certificate. That They spent time, they spent money, and then they went down, they filled the paperwork, and then they waited. Now, when that came, they used that to get a Social Security card, which meant spending more time and spending more time and then waiting. Then they could use those to take them down to the driver's license office where they had to spend more time and more money and, guess what, more waiting. All the time, all the while, someone else came alongside to make sure he had a safe place to stay so what was acquired wouldn't be stolen again. While another person came alongside to make sure he had food to eat to survive. One woman paid for a phone bill so he can stay in touch with others and get rides and and to be able to reply to interviews uh, for jobs that might call. He was six foot five, which meant he faced a challenge. Nothing that fit him was worth wearing and nothing that they they could get was going to fit him. So if they wanted him to look like somebody that you might want to hire, it meant going to that very expensive big and tall store so that he wouldn't be disqualified for the job interview once he walked in. It meant bringing alongside a hairdresser to get him a free haircut so he didn't look like he just came off the streets. All of that just so he could have a chance to apply for a job. But he got the job. And he got his first paycheck. And then another. He was back on his feet, but it wasn't easy. It took time. It took effort, not only on his part, 
but on the part of a whole bunch of people. It took a whole community. No one person did it all, but everyone's contribution mattered. See what they discussed in the process. It's a lot easier to talk about loving the poor than to actually love the poor, to treat their needs as if those needs were actually your own needs. That's why in verse 18, John acknowledges that tendency to stop at words, saying, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. As everybody with children knows, loving another person is always going to be costly. It's always going to cost us something. And yet, we often view loving the poor in a way that actually keeps us from loving the poor. We view it simply as charity, something that's good, something that's noble, but something that's optional. Throughout Scripture, though, God describes it very differently. He actually describes it as not a matter of charity, but a matter of justice, because helping somebody meet their basic needs, needs that they cannot meet their own, is actually something that we owe them something that they're due because they're made in the image of God. That's what we read in Proverbs 22, verse 2, where it says, Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. You see, if we fail to love the poor because we fail, we may often fail to see them like God sees them, to value them like God values them. And as a result, we may actually have too low a view of the poor and a too high a view of ourselves. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In our culture, there's two primary ways that most of us have learned or been taught to view the poor. They're either victims of their own choices or victims of other choices. And while both kinds of choices can not only make somebody poor but also keep them in their poverty, if we see somebody as primarily a victim of their own choices, we're going to have too low a view of them. But if we see them as primarily victims of the powerful and their choices, we're actually going to end up having too high a view of ourselves by seeing ourselves as those who are somehow above becoming a victim ourselves. Both views end up taking away their dignity and creating greater space between how we view ourselves and how we view the poor. And we'll never be able to love someone rightly as long as that gap remains. So what's the solution? How do we actually learn to love this way, to love the poor rightly? Well, if the problem suggested is, is what we see in verse 17, the problem that's keeping us from loving the poor is, is somehow the love of God isn't actually in us. The question is, how do we get that love there so it's overflowing? How does that happen? What closes the gap? Well, in short, the solution is actually becoming the poor. I don't mean by that getting, parting ways with all of your possessions and all of your money. It's actually about parting your ways with something else. So let me describe that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins in, verse, in chapter, uh, Matthew 5, verse 3, by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what does it mean to be the poor in spirit? What does it mean to be spiritually poor, and how would you know if that's actually you? Well, the rest of the sermon actually helps us to see. See, most people tend to see themselves as what you might call spiritually middle class. In other words, not, we're not as bad as Hitler, or maybe not as good as Mother Teresa, but we're pretty sure that we're still doing okay. In fact, we could even feel that we've earned a certain standing with God through all of our hard work. We may think that if the kingdom of heaven is like a house, maybe we're not in the penthouse, but we're not in the outhouse or the doghouse either. We're somewhere in the house, maybe. We might believe that because of our good work and deeds, maybe even good works and deeds for the poor, we've actually earned some degree of favor or blessing or righteousness from God. Well, then Jesus' Sermon on the Mount utterly destroys that line of thinking. Because he goes on to say in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who are thought to be the best of the best in their day, he says, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you want to earn a good spiritual standing with God, the standard is actually far higher than you ever thought it might be. 
you see yourself as spiritually middle class, it can be hard to swallow, a very hard pill. Because if your efforts have actually helped you to get ahead in so many other areas of life, you might ask, why not spiritually too? Well, this is where the poor have something very valuable to teach us because they know that you can work hard and still be poor. It's true financially, and it's true spiritually. Jesus goes on uh, to burst our spiritually middle-class bubbles in the next verse, Matthew 5, verse 21, when he says it's not enough to not be a murderer because if you harbor anger and contempt towards another person in your heart, he says you already have the same heart motive in you as a murderer. And then he doesn't stop there. In the next verses, he talks about if anybody looks upon another person with lust. In other words, wanting from them something that is not rightly yours to have from them. You have the same heart motive as an adulterer. Each teaching, as Jesus goes on, further exposes our sin, showing us to not only be spiritually poor, but spiritually bankrupt. In that same sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled But if you think about hunger, if you think about thirst, it's not something that you feel when you already have something. It's something that you only feel when you realize you don't have it at all. And when we think that maybe our deeds do merit some favor, maybe we actually have acquired some righteousness along the line. We actually hear from God in Isaiah 64 about that. It tells us that what we see as our righteous deeds actually accompany with them stains stains of our own mixed motives and our divided heart, a heart that is called by God to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We don't obey that for even five minutes, let alone our whole life, which is why Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In other words, the scriptures tell us that we're all spiritually poor before God, that we don't have a righteousness of our own, that we have no bargaining chip that we can use before God. We have a deep need for righteousness that we're actually incapable of meeting ourselves. And when we see that, when we own that, when we feel the hunger and thirst comes from knowing that we don't have that thing we most desperately need, that's how we become the poor that we too have a deep need that we could never meet on our own. You see, the challenge of becoming the poor is not parting ways with our money, our possessions. The challenge is parting ways with our claims for a self-made righteousness, acknowledging our own deep poverty and our own deep need. And when we see that, how do you think Jesus responds? He responds by loving you, by becoming the poor himself. Scriptures tell us that Jesus Jesus laid aside all the wealth and the privileges of heaven to come to earth, leaving the ultimate gated community to dwell amongst the poor. He was born under humble circumstances where his first crib was a manger. It's an animal's feeding trough. That's not your ideal situation. At his dedication, his parents could only present at his dedication two turtle doves, which was the sacrifice permitted in the temple only for those who can't afford anything better. In his adult life, he identified with the homeless, saying in Matthew 8, verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In his last sermon, he identified with the least of these, saying, Whatever you did for them, you did for me. In his last week of his life, Jesus rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room and then was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the cross, he identified with us in our spiritual poverty, letting himself be treated as if our sin 
for his sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so on the cross, Jesus actually took upon himself the justly deserved sin debt that all of us would deserve, but he takes upon himself for all of those who trust in him, paying the price of God's wrath that none of us could afford to pay. We can't pay that bill ourselves. That's why John can write in verse 16 of our chapter here, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You see, Jesus showed us how to love the poor by first loving us in our poverty, a sacrificial love, a love that shows itself in actions, that when we embrace our actual need for that, it actually enables us to show the same type of costly love to others. See, not only dealt with our greatest need, a need that we could never meet ourselves, but he also gave us a new heart. He put his spirit in us. He gave us his own self, even his own righteousness. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The riches of Jesus' own righteousness credited to your account, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we see that, see our utter lack of righteousness and Jesus offer to give you his righteousness, supply your need out of his riches, that's what changes you because it undermines your pride. So you can no longer see yourself as better than anybody else. When we see what it might cost for us then to love another in their need, it actually reminds us of the tremendous cost that Jesus already paid to love you in your deepest need. So when you see the poor, you actually see something new in them that maybe you never saw before. You see yourself, someone who has a need that they could never meet on their own. But you also see the face of Jesus, the one who says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And if we find ourselves struggling, struggling to actually want to meet the physical needs of others, it could be because we never owned our own spiritual need. And we've never let God actually meet that deepest need out of his riches rather than trying to meet that need on our own by our own efforts and our own performance. If you're thinking to yourself, but look at them. They're not worthy of my love. We may have forgotten that none of us were worthy of Jesus' love, nor worthy of the cost that he paid to show it. As Tim Keller puts it, if you believe that you're spiritually middle class, you look down on the poor. But if you believe that you too are spiritually poor, that you're only saved by grace, you'll love the poor. Or as John writes later in this letter in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Years ago, when I was living in Las Vegas, some people in our church befriended an out-of-work cook while he was sleeping alone under a lamppost in the middle of a vacant lot. We'll call him Leonard. Leonard had lived a pretty hard life up to that point. He once, back in his home state, was attacked by another man who was trying to kill him. He survived the attack, but in the struggle, the other man did not survive. Rather than ruling that Leonard acted in self-defense, he was convicted of murder and had to serve time. After that, had to struggle to find work with a felony on his record. When he was released, he came to Las Vegas to work as a cook, where, like so many other people in a down economy, he found himself soon unemployed. 
But by the time in his life, he'd also experienced other struggles. He'd been mistreated, deceived, hoodwinked, as they would say, often enough that he'd learned to assume the worst about somebody when their actions were something that he didn't quite understand, often leading to fits of rage and anger in his response to people and their seemingly innocent actions. And yet in 2012, at the bottom of the economy, things actually started looking up for him. That's when his new friends got him some temporary housing and some furniture for his place. They took him to doctor's appointments. They took him to the grocery store. They helped him get bus passes so he could get around town and have some independence. They welcomed him into their lives and into their church. When uh, they introduced him to a social worker, the social worker recognized his inability to work and was actually able to help him get the disability benefits that he'd qualified for for years but had never been able to obtain Another person was able to help him find permanent housing in that same neighborhood, which meant moving day was coming for Leonard. He was going to move into his own place, and things went not the way people expected. You see, Leonard was very particular that day about how his donated furniture was moved by his donated labor as it was loaded into the donated vehicle as he was being moved out of his donated condominium. As he leaned on his cane and barked orders, At his small team of amateur volunteers, he insulted their intelligence and their competency, criticizing them basically for lacking the skills of professional movers at volunteer prices. In a word, he was belligerent. When one volunteer pushed back against Leonard's sharp criticism of their free labor, Leonard didn't back down. In fact, he doubled down on his harsh tone and criticism until one volunteer stormed away, hurt and angry. Pretty soon, only one volunteer was left. He knew it would go faster if he called in reinforcements, but he also knew that any reinforcements would also be subjected to Leonard's rage at imperfection. He, too, was hurt and angry, knowing there are a lot of other ways that he could have been spending his day. So he thought, where's the gratitude? Where's the thanks? Have they totally forgotten the abundant kindness and generosity they've already been shown? No wonder they have no friends. No wonder they were out there alone in that field. They pushed away everybody or just scared them off. And he thought to himself in his most honest moment, they really deserve my help. And the reality is God could have looked at our need for help and said the exact same thing. Because we too often forget the blessings that we've been given, the grace that we've been shown, all that we've already received, how it's actually better than we deserve. And we too often complain to God, maybe even in anger, in ways that also grieve the one who has already given us so much. That last volunteer had a choice. The same choice that God has with you and with me. Give them what their actions and their attitudes deserve or give them what they need. By the end of that day, Leonard was in his new place, his own place, with a bed to sleep on and everything. He would never be homeless again. In the end, he probably didn't get what his words and what his deeds deserved. Instead, he got what he needed. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. Not giving you what your words and your deeds deserve. Not giving me what my words and my deeds, my impure motives, my mixed motives. Not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we need. 
paying the debt for our sin on the cross, giving us a love and a forgiveness and a new heart and a righteous standing that we so desperately need but could have never secured on our own, which means if we're actually going to love the poor, it doesn't start by seeing ourselves like that last volunteer. It begins by seeing ourselves like Leonard, one who was loved, not according to what our actions deserve, but according to our needs. Not because of our own goodness, but because of the goodness of the one who loved us. A love given with a purpose in mind that we too could respond to others' needs in love. Because we know with all certainty that's how God first loved us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your message of grace to us. Father, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you treat us according to what we so desperately need because of our sins. Father, we pray that your love for us would overwhelm us. It would flow out of us that when we see the poor amongst us, we would see our very selves, that we would see in them the face of Jesus, that we would see amongst us those made in the image of God, those who are do our help, simply because they bear your image. Father, teach us to love as those who have first loved by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, the Lord be